0: Border conflicts in Myanmar, leadership transitions in Singapore, and climate initiatives in Indonesia. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Jafet Kitsan, and today is November 16, 2023. On
1: today's show... This is going to be a big challenge for Laos because they're going through uh, an economic crisis of sorts right now. I know they're committed to being a responsible ASEAN chair, and they know there's a lot of needs and priorities in the region. I understand they're picking out a uh, theme along the lines of connectivity and resilience. I think that's a reflection of the challenges since COVID and post-Russian invasion of Ukraine.
0: That was Peter Heyman, who chatted with Greg Poling and Alina Noor on the latest in Laos and what expectations we can have for its upcoming ASEAN chair year. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, you have John Indergaard in the studio. John is an advocacy and project coordinator at the Chin Association of Maryland. Happy to be here, Joffit. John, tell me about your work.
2: Well, at the Chin Association, we research and advocate on behalf of the Chin minority in Burma and the diaspora in the United States, representing their interests in Congress. We just wrapped up a research trip to Mizoram, India, which is hosting tens of thousands of Chin refugees. That's
0: wonderful. How did you end up at the Chain Association?
2: Well, I've been interested in human rights and peacebuilding, fragile states, for a long time. I spent some time before graduate school interning at the Wilson Center, where I developed my specific interest in Myanmar.
0: And what a time it is to study Myanmar, the focus of our first story. Myanmar's military junta has been facing renewed resistance to its rule, as an alliance of ethnic minority armies launched an offensive known as Operation 1027.
2: Dozens of military posts and several important towns in northern Shan state bordering China were seized by the Three Brotherhood Alliance and other resistance forces.
0: The Three Brotherhood Alliance said in a statement that they are seeking to defend their territory and civilians from attacks by the junta. Another one of their key objectives is to clear out scam centers run by junta proxies, which are increasingly running afoul of Chinese law enforcement.
2: Just two weeks before these attacks, at least 29 civilians were killed at a camp for the internally displaced in neighboring Kachin state. Ethnic minority armies blamed the military. The offensive, which some analysts called the military junta's biggest test since taking power in 2021, has inspired resistance forces to make gains in other states, and even
0: along the Indian border. Worst of all for the junta, the Arakan army, one of the most powerful armed groups and a Brotherhood Alliance member, has broken its ceasefire with the military in Rakhine state. And thousands of people are being displaced as we speak, with some crossing into China and others into India.
2: Moving on to our next story, another key test for a major Southeast Asian country. Earlier this month, Singapore Prime Minister Li Xianlong announced that he will be handing power over to Deputy Prime Minister Lawrence Wong before the next general election in
0: 2025. Wong and Li further specify that the transition will happen before November 21, 2024, the ruling People's Action Party's 70th anniversary. The announcement was
2: made at a PAP party convention where Wong declared that the PAP would continue to win the confidence and trust of all Singaporeans.
0: Most analysts agree that Lee's decision, or the 2025 general elections, will not affect political stability in the coming years, and that the PAP will remain firmly in power.
2: In the 2020 parliamentary elections, it won 83 of 93 seats.
0: But weren't the 10 seats won by the opposition unprecedented?
2: Well, just goes to show how much control the PAP has over Singapore's political system.
0: Huh. The PAP succession plans have been in place since June last year, when Lee promoted Wang to deputy minister. Wang has been finance minister since 2021. But he really got
2: famous during the COVID-19 pandemic, when he served as co-head of the government's COVID-19 task force.
0: Yes, he was praised for imposing policies that effectively contained infections and minimized deaths in the small yet densely populated city-state. Sounds like a good dude. CSIS should invite him for a chat. We did. He came over just a month ago, on October 13th, when he talked about a wide range of issues related to the U.S.-Singapore relationship. Haven't you checked our website or Twitter page recently? I guess not. For those listening at home, I'm currently shaking my head. Anyways, moving on to news from Indonesia. It seems that the Maritime Nation announced several climate-related initiatives over the past week. Yes, Jakarta released a comprehensive
2: investment and policy plan in late October that would allow it to secure 20 billion US dollars in funding under a Just Energy Transition Partnership, or JetP. Wait, what's
0: a JetP? It's a financing scheme that aims to help developing countries shift to clean energy, and it's made up of investments, grants, and loans from G7 members and other financial institutions. Well,
2: under the plan, Indonesia aims to cut carbon emissions from the on-grid power sector to two hundred and fifty million metric tons by 2030. It also aims to increase the share of renewable energy to 44%.
0: One major caveat, though, the policy plan does not include coal-fired captive power plants, which are off-grid systems used by industries alone.
2: Yes, apparently authorities excluded captive power plants from the plan so that they could work out how to protect the nickel sector.
0: But Indonesia also launched Southeast Asia's largest floating solar plant last week. The $143
2: million project, made up of 340,000 solar panel units across 250 hectares, is located in Purwakarta in West Java province.
0: President Jokowi proudly called this a historic event and a realization of a dream to help develop large-scale renewable energy.
2: Wow, the Indonesian government has been really busy lately. Yeah, I hear they even banned TikTok while they banned commercial transactions on social media platforms to ensure fair and just competition and to protect user data.
0: But it was widely seen as unofficially targeting the TikTok platform and its e-commerce arm TikTok Shop. TikTok even suspended its online retail operations after these regulations were announced. Yes, and many small e-commerce companies have also been affected by the ban and have been trying to work around it. The concerns of the government seem to hold some water, though. Even Malaysia, right next door, has started studying potential regulations for TikTok shop. What kind of regulations? The government is looking to register online social media platforms and even implement a global minimum tax. In justifying these measures, Communications and Digital Minister
2: Fami Fadzil not only pointed to TikTok's impact on retail competition, but also its tendency to spread fake news and censor content related to the Israel-Hamas
0: conflict. All in all, Malaysia and Indonesia's moves against TikTok show just how widespread the backlash has been against the Chinese company's activities in the region. Yes,
2: it seems that things are not boding well for TikTok in Southeast Asia.
0: No, I guess not. But either way, those were our headlines. Thanks, John, for stopping by. Up next, Greg's interview with Peter Heyman, so stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of
3: Southeast Asia Radio. My name is Greg Poling with CSIS, joined finally by co-host Alina Noor of Carnegie. Hi, Alina.
4: Ouch. Hi again.
3: No, it's no problem. The listeners really enjoyed me doing this by myself for a month. I got plenty of angry uh, emails asking where Alina is.
4: I'm sure nobody's missed me, but, but thank you for mentioning that, Greg.
3: And our guest today is Ambassador Peter Heyman. Pete he was the U.S. ambassador to Laos from January 2020 to August 2023. And is now spending a couple of years uh, in sunny Honolulu at the uh, Daniel K. Inouye Asia-Pacific Center for Strategic Studies. Hi, Pete.
1: Hi. Very happy to be there and to be here today. Good to be with both of you.
3: Yes. And Pete is physically in studio, as are mm. all of us. I don't think we've recorded in studio for probably three or four episodes. So a landmark. Here we go. Uh, hopefully yes. the audio quality uh, attests to that. And as should have been obvious from the intro of Pete, we're here to talk about Laos. It's the time to do it. One, because we haven't talked about Laos. In- Ever the year and a half or so of this podcast, mm-hmm. uh, and two, because Laos just took over the ASEAN chairmanship for the year 2024, That's right. which means that the next 12 months may be the only time for a while that Washington talks about Laos. So we might as well start. Why don't I just throw it to you on Laos and ASEAN? Any idea what
1: the Lao government hopes to achieve Laos with its Laos and chair? ASEAN. This is going to be a big challenge for Laos because they're going through uh, an economic crisis of sorts right now. I know they're committed to being a responsible ASEAN chair and they know there's a lot of needs and priorities in the region i understand they're picking out a uh, theme along the lines of connectivity and resilience i think that's a reflection of the challenges since covid and post Russian invasion of Ukraine, reviving their economies. And we can get into a little bit more of what that might move down to in topics.
4: But I understand that they're also getting support from other ASEAN member states, including Indonesia, on some of the topics of relevance to the region itself, notably on Myanmar. And I'm sure we'll get into that later as mm-hmm. well. Do you know of any other partners that are supporting the Lao chairmanship of ASEAN? within ASEAN, as well as beyond, including the United States?
1: I think many partners are helping support Laos. It's a huge challenge for a small country to handle all the delegations that will be coming in through the year. And so the United States, I know Australia, Singapore, within the region. Japan, Korea, I'm sure the PRC, other partners are providing equipment and training, language grades. English language is a challenge for Laos, but it's the language of ASEAN. All the delegations coming in will need it. So we've got an English fellow in there. Australians are training translators. There'll be support from all the way around. Happily for Laos, they have good relations with everybody and everybody wants to see them succeed. Great. So
3: it's a little unfair to Laos that we went from a chair of the largest and most capable, at least... resource sense, most capable of the members, Indonesia, to now the least capable Life is an unfair (laughs) circumstance. Given that, I mean, is it enough for Laos to just try to get through the year? Is that the only goal? Or do you think there's a a real positive agenda? Here's things that we want to get done.
1: I think my own guess, this would be me just speaking from experience there, not from Lao information. Laos will want to get through the year in a way that has their ASEAN partners, including the Indonesians and such, feel like they're helping carry the ball forward. I think they will be, depending on the Indonesias and the Thailands and the Vietnams and the Philippines, the Malaysias, the larger economies and countries, to inform, heavily inform that discussion, the Lao will try to move successfully within those desires of the, the bigger states. The Lao take a lot of pride in their relative success of their one other recent chairmanship in 2016, mainly because they actually got to the finish line with a chair statement and in words that a few different Laos officials have used with me, pissed off everybody equally. So that's the goal is to be the fair chair going through.
4: I mean, are we just short-selling Laos? Are we just setting too low a bar of expectations? Because granted, there may be resource challenges, but I'm sure they also have some kind of intellectual thought leadership that they'd like to put forward. And you had mentioned the, the theme of connectivity and resilience, and that's obviously front and center of their minds. But by us alluding that they need all the support that they can to get in order to just get across the finish line, are we just being a little unfair on them?
1: I think setting expectations in appropriate places is helpful because then any miscalculation ends up being a bright side. Uh, because there's been positive things achieved. I think the Lao within the theme that I mentioned, as I understand it, would like to see progress both for themselves and for ASEAN. One obvious place on the resilience theme and connectivity as well would be in the energy sector, where Laos has ambitions to continue to expand its role, to be exporting energy to its neighbors, even its far neighbors as far south as Singapore, uh, at a time when the combination of energy market instability that were highlighted, particularly since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, plus the commitments of all these states in in ASEAN, including Laos, to reduce their carbon emissions, to employ more renewables, more green energy, more efficiencies is going to bring a, hopefully, a, a culminating, a positive point to move forward on a more cohesive regional grid and planning. From the Lao perspective, exports of energy outward from the other uh, countries, uh, diversifying the sources of their energies, both types of energy and locations or markets it's coming from. So, on that one, I think the Lao are very invested. It's something that's very important to them on several levels since they import every drop of petroleum that they use.
3: So, on that point, a decade ago, Lao
1: strategic goal was to become the, quote, battery
3: of Southeast Asia through massive development of hydropower resources on the Mekong River, which Laos has done despite objections from some of its own neighbors and, and some of its own public. Now we live in a world of energy market volatility in which perhaps that's no longer a viable model, or at least not only a viable model. How exactly is using Laos's kind of strategic vision for its own energy security and its role in the region is evolving away from that perhaps too simplistic idea that build
1: enough dams and you'll become the battery of Southeast Asia. For the time being, though, there are continue to be dams going ahead. There is a sense that the heavy investment in hydropower in particular, major projects, but hydropower in particular, have not paid off economically as the Lao might have hoped. That may be to do with some of the, the quality of some of the projects, the contracts that were signed under the projects. And so there is interest, I know, in the Lao government to diversify, to taking advantage of some of their wind and solar resources to provide their, to supply their neighbors as well. Hydropower still is, they see in their future, I think they've moved beyond seeing just hydropower is driving that because so much has been put into place. And it's an unfortunate case that their energy, I think their energy ministry, their energy Operator, I should say, accounts for something over 40% of the national debt. And that's supposed to be a leading economic sector. So they've acknowledged that reforms are necessary within that sector as well as diversifying beyond hydropower.
4: So, on the theme of connectivity, I would assume that beyond just the ASEAN power grid, there are also ambitions on Laos's part to connect the rest of Southeast Asia to and through them with other bigger neighbors, particularly China. What sort of other infrastructure projects are the Laotians thinking of, um, particularly during the chairmanship year and advancing some of those projects, but also beyond their chairmanship year?
1: Sure, definitely so. Laos has existed throughout its history as basically a belt of mountains between the Thai sphere, the Vietnamese sphere, and the Chinese sphere. And it's really only now in this past decade that demands of the markets around them and infrastructure possibilities and beginning projects and technology is making it feasible for Laos to be a connection point rather than an obstacle to go around. And beginning with the much talked about Chinese built railroad that goes from Vientiane up to Kunming in Yunnan province in uh, China. But beyond that, Laos is looking actively looking to make itself the pathway of choice for trade flows from Thailand up to the Chinese market and vice versa, from Thailand over the Vietnamese market and vice versa, to be an alternative to shipping around the Malacca Straits. And they believe they can do it, and World Bank and others believe it's feasible that that can be done on a commercial basis. The beginning of that is the North-South Railroad. There is currently an actively planned uh, railroad east-west crossing Laos to go into Vietnam and connect with a port where the Vietnamese are providing some berths for the Lao to use, Laos's first ever connection out on the ocean. There's also active ongoing programs to upgrade the road infrastructure that connects Thailand over to Vietnam to offer more alternatives. And Laos has got now three operating and six more planned, what they call dry ports, that is trade facilitation points at the bridges or the other connection points between the countries. To reduce the costs for shippers who are sending things through
4: who are these funded by
1: oh the dry ports yeah. the dry ports are lao is putting most of the money into it i think some financing from the development banks and there may be some from the neighboring countries too so far the three operating ones are in vientiane which is funded largely by a lao private operation there's one in Savannakhet in the middle of laos connecting Thailand and Laos, and one in the far south and the other biggest city in Laos. So logistics is another area where Laos is looking to put some of its economic future.
3: The much talked about, much maligned,
1: here at least, uh,
3: Kunming to Vientiane Railroad has, from what I can tell, three related problems. One, it's probably not commercially viable if it just stops in Vientiane. Two, the neighbors have not always been eager, particularly Thailand, to extend the portion that China would like into Thailand and beyond, and then three, the enormous debt burden and the stress that that puts on Laos. Can you kind of knock down each of those? Or is well, art-
1: sure. There's I mean, there's some basis for each of those things. Number one is closely linked to number three. Of course, that is the question of commercial viability and then the debt burden and the challenges of paying back that debt. Some of that debt is being absolved by development concessions to the Chinese along the railroad. Development zones have been provided or made available to the Chinese. It's hard to say that the railroad would be built on just a commercial basis. Two-thirds of the length between Vientiane and the Chinese border is either bridge or tunnel. It's hugely expensive for the the length that went. That's why there hadn't never been a railroad of any kind in Laos in the 200 years that railroads have been been built. That's why the Laos are immensely proud of the railroad. It's their first modern late 20th century, early 21st century piece of infrastructure there. They believe it's helping them move towards their goal of being that trade connection point. They have many challenges to make it pay so far. Quick follow-up on the, the debt burden. You were in your role as
3: ambassador when the concession of electric state, to Lao to a Chinese company took
1: place, right? It was signed, but to my knowledge, it was signed about two years ago, a little over two years ago. To my knowledge, it has not been fully implemented because the details and the annexes about things like valuation of assets belonging that the Lao government is putting into the pro- program is not yet concluded. I was there at the time. For a variety of reasons. I think because the LAO are hopefully looking to get the best deal they can, one issue in the past decade on the hydropower projects is they often signed non-advantageous deals. That project has not yet been implemented. I mean, alarm bells rang here and and, and elsewhere.
3: Effectively, this was another Sri Lanka example, a Chinese company getting a 99-year lease on, on, in this case, the power transmission grid, fundamental national Mm -hmm. critical uh, infrastructure in Laos.
1: Are those well-founded concerns, or is this manageable? Continuing concerns, a reasonably positive sign is that the Lao are at least pushing out the full implementation, as I said, of the project, because they are very aware of the, the sovereignty concerns that have been expressed to them by their friends and partners. At the same time, from their perspective, they're deeply into debt. They want their energy sector in particular is deeply in debt. They want the energy sector to help lead the economy forward. They didn't see, they said, another way around, another continuing challenge. As I said, the energy sector is a major part of the national debt, provides that. And the reason they're able to continue solvency at the moment appears to be because they're getting a very favorable treatment from the chinese entities who hold much of the debt in terms of delaying requirements for repayment that's not necessarily a stable arrangement at the same time china has interests in making its case as a good partner to asean and the smallest economy in asean failing on china's doorstep with China holding the debt, is not a good look for China. That's the incentive, it's understood, for China to help negotiate through these next few years of debt payments until their economy revives.
4: I'd like to switch gears to another continuing concern or continuing challenge, as you phrased it just a minute ago, and that's Myanmar. Mm. Myanmar has been this overcasting cloud over ASEAN for two years now. Mm -hmm. And there's an ASEAN troika that's supposed to be set up to deal with the Myanmar challenge. Before you left, Laos, what did you hear about some of the details of that troika and Laos's role in it as ASEAN chair? Well,
1: I think the troika itself is there, as we were talking a little bit about the partners supporting Laos through its chairmanship. Mm. I think this is one of the forms of support. As you said, this is a Myanmar situation. Political situation has been a pall over ASEAN, 10-member institution that operates by consensus makes it very difficult to achieve that consensus within the within ASEAN and makes it more difficult to deal with partners like the United States who have grave concerns about Myanmar. Uh, I think putting together the troika there is to help provide capacity and support for Laos within the chairmanship to deal with this specific issue and to help assure a continuity within ASEAN. I think that was probably the expressed purpose of putting the Troika together to include past, present, and next future chairs. Since the views within ASEAN have different shades of nuance between them, but ASEAN only really carries weight if it's able to speak as one group, at least one group of nine countries. So that this Troika is put together specifically by the ASEAN partners with Lao concurrence. I think Lao is looking for help. I know talking to Lao interlocutors, they were they were not looking forward to having to deal with this issue with every meeting. So having an institutional basis for support in addressing it just in meeting logistics or in policy terms, I think is welcome
4: to the government. I mean, I think to be fair to Lao, I don't think any... ASEAN member state ever looks forward to having to deal with uh, Myanmar. Fully and, agree at every meeting and so the support of the Troika is probably not just for Laos but also for Indonesia and its fast driven <laughs> and for Malaysia and its next year.
3: The crisis in Myanmar, as much as Laos might want it to remain somewhat distant or you know leave it to the Troika to handle, it does directly impact on one of the other major priorities I would assume of Laos this year and, and ASEAN overall, which is dealing with the huge spike in transnational crime in the Golden Triangle, particularly this explosion of Chinese owned and operated scam facilities that are kidnapping and and trafficking in tens of thousands of of people. How, How does Laos, I mean, one, I guess, how much is Laos? trying to grapple with that issue and how much success do you think it might have as
1: often? Sure, during? sure. Uh, an excellent question because it's an issue we were focusing a lot on in the embassy there along with other embassies who are impacted by this this concern. For Laos, a long-time concern and a recent top priority for the Lao government has been counter-narcotics. Huge flow of synthetic Drugs coming out of Myanmar, crossing Laos to other markets and impacting Lao persons along the way. So they announced that as their their number two national priority after economic reform coming out of COVID, actually in in the middle of COVID. What you mentioned is a new factor. For the first time in Laos's history, which is in terms of human trafficking, has long been a source country. That is, Lao going to find work in Thailand or in other places, and if they went illegally, they were subject to abuse and getting in abusive situations. This explosion in cyber crimes and the demand in particular for English speakers has meant, for the first time ever in Laos, a continuous stream of trafficked foreigners into Laos as opposed to out of. It's reportedly in talking to Diplomatic colleagues from other ASEAN countries raised huge concerns in Indonesia and the Philippines and Malaysia, and others whose nationals have been trafficked in. But beyond that, it, there's now a steady stream of persons trafficked in from South Asia, from East Africa, a situation that's beyond any previous law or policy that the Lao even had in place. I will say that they've been. Reasonably proactive and very much in response to other embassies in helping rescue those who've asked to be rescued From the most notorious site up at the Golden Triangle the the SCZ up there They will be looking for help. I think from the international community but in this case probably particularly from China since it's a Chinese owned entity that runs this operation just as there's a different Chinese-owned entity that runs a similar operation on the Burma-Thai border and other similar, different, but similar Chinese entities that run similar operations in Cambodia to engage or persuade China, the PRC, to help push back on these Chinese-owned cyber scam operations, the so-called pig butchering scams. And as I left, there were announcements about how Lao public security and Chinese public security are going to push back on this. This isn't just something for Laos, as I mentioned. There's an expectation that this will be a theme taken up within the ASEAN grouping. There's the ASEANs who've been the sources of those who are being trafficked now into the zone. and Then there's Cambodia, Laos, and Myanmar, which have been the sites of the cyber scam operations. and There's Thailand, which tends to be the route by which the traffickers move. They're often recruited on Facebook ads or others to come to an IT job or some such job in Thailand and then shipped off to a place, which turns out to be Laos, for instance, often without a Lao visa or even necessarily knowing where they are. And then they try to get out and they try to contact an embassy. And The Lao are helpful in getting out, but are going to need more support in shutting down the operations. So a big issue for the region right now.
4: We only have a few minutes more, but it would be remiss of us to not touch on the U.S.-Lao relationship mm, of because Lao does not get very much attention at all in D.C. It's that going to change with Lao taking over ASEAN chairmanship this year, but also bearing in mind that there's going to be a U.S. presidential election next year. Sure, sure. What do you think the dynamics are going to be like with bilateral ties? Sure.
1: I will say the, the biggest jump in positivity and in positive movement in U.S.-Lao ties came from and around the visit of then President Obama in 2016, which is the last last time Laos hosted. President Obama attended the summit and did a bilateral visit as well. This year, the Lao know that our presidential election is coming up. Then President Obama was not running for re-election. President Biden is, and they know that's going to be a challenging dynamic. It will certainly be a big year for US Lao engagement. There's a long troubled history there. Going back to the Indochina War, the Vietnam War, which was also heavily involved Laos, the Ho Chi Minh Trail is all located in Laos. The legacy of unexploded ordnance and the Cold War afterwards, still alive in the memories of uh, the Lao government and to some extent the people, but particularly the ruling class. At the same time, since the visit of President Obama, which also allowed uh, USAID to open an office there, And the resources that have flown to some extent to greater engagement with ASEAN as a whole out of the Obama rebalance and the Trump free and open Indo-Pacific strategy and the Biden Indo-Pacific strategy has meant more assistance, more capacity building between the two countries. And then COVID for all the tragic aspects, and there were many, and the Lao economy certainly hasn't recovered ended up being a net plus for the diplomatic relationship because of the vaccine and other medical support the United States was able to provide through USAID, through USCDC, through even the medical parts of our military. We came out with, I honestly believe, the best relationship since 1975 because of these factors that have been furthering engagement. Still troubled, still challenging, but the best has been. And there's an opportunity this year through the ASEAN year and all the different departments, secretaries, assistant secretaries, others who will be going to Laos for ASEAN meetings and also meeting Lao counterparts to push forward a number of ongoing initiatives and new initiatives and make this a real partnership with one of the weakest members of ASEAN, but also a full voting member. We're
3: already at time, but I have to ask one last question anyway, because who knows when we might cover Laos again on the podcast. If I were to go around the U.S. government and ask senior officials what they think about Laos, those who would have an opinion would probably say something to the effect that because of its indebtedness, Laos, like Cambodia, at least the government of Laos, like that of Cambodia, is effectively a Chinese proxy. And that's the extent, I think, of the strategic thinking about Laos. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm is that a fair assessment? Or do you think that Laos has far more agency, or at least maybe not far more, has more agency than many in Washington might assume?
1: I would go with the more agency argument. There's certainly PRC influence. There would be, even without the debt situation, you have a 1.4 billion next to a 7.5 million state. Just the economic influence, economic weight, there will be influence. The debt situation increases that influence. The one informed commentator noted that Laos also has some leverage with China on the debt circumstance because China would look really bad if Laos defaulted at this point. But in terms of the nuance, Laos, like every other country I've been associated with in East Asia and elsewhere, doesn't want to be another province of China. They want to preserve their own autonomy. They fought a war against us along with their Vietnamese partners to keep that autonomy. and They are looking to balance economically, politically. Between, in my metaphor, the PRC on one hand, a huge neighbor which will always have great influence, and essentially the rest of the world, on the other side, led by Vietnam, which is still Laos's closest partner. Nobody would, I think, confuse Vietnam for a proxy for China, given their history and their relative weight. Yet they are the most, still the most influential partner Laos has. The partner that Laos trusts most. And so, in this scale, the question is not settled, but you have China on the one side, and then you have Vietnam, the rest of ASEAN, Russia as a counterweight, a traditional partner and counterweight to China, Japan, Korea, Australia, the EU, US, and other countries. And that's the scale the Lao are trying to maintain to preserve their own economic and political decision making sovereignty. So. Not a proxy, heavy influence, challenges as there are throughout the region, and scope this year in particular to make some advance in partnership. All right, well, Pete, thank you so much for coming in and talking
3: to us today. I look forward to more engagements. Hopefully, next time out in, in Honolulu, we'll come over to your podcast
1: studio. Do that, do that. We'll get it going. And Alina, you as well, come on out to Hawaii. I know you're familiar. You've been out there. I'm Always just, welcome an opportunity I'm just to go back. In your footsteps. Okay.
3: Hope, hope right. to see you out there. And thank all of you for listening to another episode. Aline and I will be back in two weeks for the next Southeast Asia Radio.
0: Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have.
2: Do us a favor and subscribe. And give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us.
0: Marla Hiller is our producer and our intern is Angus Lamb. Our hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Jaffet Kitson And I'm John Indergaard. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.